0: This show was first broadcast on Free FM Hamilton, New Zealand's Community Access Media Organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hello and welcome once again to our programme. On the website www.elephantjournal.com, I found the following article by Ben Riggs, author of the book Find God in the Body A Spiritual Path for the Modern West. The article is titled Meditating with Demons How to Love Those Wounded Aspects of Yourself Back into the Present Moment, and it goes like this Our ego, according to the Buddhist teachings, is nothing more than an undeveloped aspect of experience. It is fragments of our person, the personality. Furthermore, an ego is not a noun. They certainly present themselves as if they were solid characters, but in fact, There are systemic processes of repressed energy orbiting around a fixed idea about how I should be. The ego is a manufactured misunderstanding. Every day we cycle through an astonishing number of worlds. We have dozens of egos, and every one of them are shards of our true self that were shaved off by an inability to relate to some dimension of our journey. The ego is always seen as the bad guy, so to speak. It is the classically selfish personality that is blamed for all of our troubles. It is like the devil. But like most devils, the ego is just a scapegoat. If we are willing to reconnect with these undeveloped personalities through non-judgmental awareness, we will see that the ego, how I should be, is just a shell. It's a container that is used to conceal the one thing we fear most, fear itself. Every ego is a limited expectation of the self, and he capitalizes the S, inspired by fear. The fixed ideas about how we should be by themselves are insubstantial. They are validated by fear, which dates back to some historical event that was traumatic or unacceptable, an experience we were incapable of relating to. We literally couldn't accept it. We did not know how. While the fear may have its origins in our past, it continues to be a governing force in our lives. This force is the dark side, the personification of those underlying threads of paranoia and insecurity that perpetuate the vicious cycles of repression and ignorance we can't seem to escape. Ignorance is the author's construction. It is fear, how things shouldn't be, that supplies the gravitational center of an egocentric world with its density. Our worlds are orbiting around karmic impressions, energetic and emotional charges that are associated with the historical events we fail to relate to. These energies remain entangled by somatic tension and ignorance, physical oppression and obsessive brands of entertainment that anesthetize us or attempt to wrap our deepest, darkest fears in a pretty package. I'm not speaking of a particular fear, but fear in and of itself. We may be afraid of intimacy, loneliness, success or failure, but all of them share this basic element of fear. I'm talking about primal fear. It is not actually intimacy that we're afraid of. We are afraid of fear, the inability to relate which at some point in our past intimacy introduced us to. Primal fear is the basic premise upon which this ego story is constructed. The belief that if we were to open up and relate we would be swept away by a flood of energy. The ego resists the energy because it does not know how to relate to it. So it tries to repress the energy or bottle it up. This energy is translated as fear, because when we try to bottle it up or try to control it the situation becomes explosive. The energy is too much for a container, it begins to appear aggressive. It is the way we are relating to the energy that is creating the appearance of aggression. The spiritual path could be defined as an endless process of individuation in which we change directions and begin to explore this inner universe, a recollection of the basic energy That constitutes life and he capitalizes the L. We have to reconnect with these undeveloped personalities and breathe space into their hearts. Space is the spring from which the waters of eternal life flow. So reconnecting with these personalities and defending the space they need to continue their development means being willing to sit unmoved or completely grounded and watch as these monstrous visions of our dark side emerge from, and return to, space. There is no reason to fear this energy. It is the quality of space that gives birth to our life. But knowing this, in theory, is not enough. We have to feel the fear. We have to taste it. It is like licking honey off a razor blade. Licking that honey off the razor's edge is a great demonstration of love and courage it takes an immense amount of courage to sit through fear. This courage to be in space is the basic principle of meditation practice. If you sit until you want to get up, but just continue to sit and watch the desire to get up without being moved one way or the other, you will soon be initiated into this dark space and develop a profound appreciation for the haunting silence of your radiant mind. If we turn the impartial eye of fearless honesty towards even the darkest and most hideous personality in our wardrobe, we will see that it is characterized by the emotional maturity of a neglected youth and we will be inspired to act compassionately by defending the space it needs to liberate itself. We will gladly offer our conscious self up as nourishment and openly receive the return of our misplaced self. In order to do this, we have to reconnect it with the earth. He then quotes Chognyam trumpa with, Too often people think that solving the world's problems is based on conquering the earth, rather than touching the earth, touching ground. Ben Riggs concludes, Meditation is the willingness to put aside all aggression and judgment and simply see the union of space and energy, our true self, and the capital S is there again, at the core of the most vile and terrifying shard of ourself, capital S. Then, just as the Buddha did, we have to touch the earth. We have to love that wounded aspect of ourself back into the present moment. That is individuation. That is awakening. This is perhaps the best way to relate to the instruction given in the text, Mind Training Like the Rays of the Sun, to make offerings to harm-givers. We think not so much in terms of physical offerings, but the offering of our compassion and understanding through non-judgmental awareness. And this is perhaps the greatest offering as it releases the demon into the empty radiance of mind. As you may remember from our last program, Milarepa did, when confronted, by the five boogie-eyed demons in his Himalayan meditation cave. Mind training like the rays of the sun by Nam Kapal is the text we are currently following in these programs, and we have reached the chapter on cultivating the mind of bodhicitta, the wish to attain enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. Following the description of how to practice tonglen, that is, taking on suffering and giving out happiness, We are given instructions on five precepts we should observe in the mind training. These instructions are, firstly, taking adverse circumstances into the path of enlightenment. Secondly, the integrated practice of a single lifetime. And then number three, the measure of having trained the mind. Number four, the commitments of mind training. And five, the precepts of mind training. Making offerings to harm givers is part of the first instruction taking adverse circumstances into the path of enlightenment. It is one of four practices that accompany Tonglen, and those four are accumulation of merit, purification of negativity, making offerings to harm-givers, and finally offering ritual cakes to and seeking help from Dharma protectors. So that is our context, and now before we go on, let's check our motivation as we usually do. Tupten is has this to say about intention and motivation in an article on tricycle.org. Framing our days between intention-setting and joyful dedication, even once a week, can change how we live. It's a purposeful approach of self-awareness, conscious intention and focused effort, three precious gifts of contemplative practice by which we take responsibility for our thoughts and actions and take charge of ourselves and our lives. As the Buddha put it, you are your own enemy and you are your own saviour. The Buddha saw our thoughts, emotions and actions are the primary sources of our suffering. Equally, our thoughts, emotions and actions can be the source of our joy and freedom. Living as much as possible with conscious intention is the first step of this transformation. Not only that, when our aspirations include the welfare and happiness of others, Our deeds and our life as a whole acquire a purpose that is greater than our individual existence. In everyday English, we often use the words intention and motivation interchangeably, as if they mean the same thing. But there's an important difference, deliberateness. Our motivation to do something is the reason or reasons behind that behavior, the source of our desire and the drive to do it we may be more or less aware of our motivations. Psychologists define motivation as the process that arouses, sustains and regulates human and animal behavior. Simply put, motivation is what turns us on. For some it might be fame, for others it might be money, excitement or thrill, sex, recognition, loyalty, service, a sense of belonging, safety, justice and so on. The force of motivation develops through a mutually reinforcing cycle of desire and reward. When something we do is rewarding, we want to do it again. If we do it again, we are rewarded again and want to do it more. Intention, on the other hand, is always deliberate, an articulation of a conscious goal. Intention is necessarily conscious. Motivation, as Freud pointed out, need not be conscious even to the person himself. We need intentions for the long view. We set and reaffirm our best intentions to keep us inclined in the directions we truly mean to go. But we need motivations to keep us going over the long haul. If our intention is to run a marathon, there will be times when the alarm clock goes off for a ten-mile run before work, or in the middle of running, when we'll ask ourselves quite reasonably, why am I doing this? We need good, inspired answers to get us over such humps. Conscious or unconscious, motivation is the why and the spark behind intention. Jumper then describes an exercise in setting one's intention. He says, You could do this intention-setting exercise at home, first thing in the morning if that's convenient. You could also do it on a bus or a subway on your commute. If you work in an office, You could do it sitting at your desk before you get into the day. You only need two to five uninterrupted minutes. The Tibetan tradition recommends setting our intention and checking with our motivations in this manner at the beginning of the day, at the start of a meditation sitting and before any important activity. Our intention sets the tone of whatever we are about to do. Like music, intention can influence our mood, thoughts and feelings, Setting an intention in the morning, we set the tone for the day. First, find a comfortable sitting posture. If you can, sit on a cushion on the floor or on a chair with the soles of your feet touching the ground, which gives you a feeling of being grounded. If you prefer, you could also lie down on your back, ideally on a surface that's not too soft, like a sinking mattress. Once you have found your posture, relax your body as much as you can. If necessary, with some stretches, especially your shoulders and your back. Then with your eyes closed, if it helps you to focus, take three to five deep diaphragmatic or abdominal breaths, each time drawing the inhalation down into the belly and filling up the torso with an in-breath from the bottom to the top, like filling a jar with water. Then with a long, slow exhalation, expel all the air from the torso all the way. If it helps, you can exhale from your mouth. Inhale and exhale. Once you feel settled, contemplate the following questions. What is it that I value deeply? What, in the depths of my heart, do I wish for myself, for my loved ones, and for the world? Stay on these questions a little and see if any answers come up. If no specific answers surface, don't worry simply stay with the open questions. Now, This may take some getting used to, since when we ask questions, we usually expect to answer them. Trust that the questions themselves are working, even or especially when we don't have ready answers. If and when answers do come up, acknowledge them as they arise and stay with whatever thoughts and feelings they may bring. Finally, develop a specific set of thoughts as your conscious intention For this day, for instance, you could think, today may I be more mindful of my body, mind and speech in my interaction with others. May I, as far as I can, avoid deliberately hurting others. May I relate to myself, to others and to the events around me with kindness, understanding and less judgment. May I use my day in a way that is in tune with my deeper values. In this way, set the tone for the day. Now once we can become more familiar with intention setting, we can do this practice in a minute or less. That means we can find opportunities during the day to check in with our intentions. Doctors who have taken the compassion training, for example, have used the time it takes to wash their hands between patients to return to their intentions and report how this makes them feel more centered and present for the next patient. We can even skip the three-phased formal practice and do a quick reset by reading or chanting a few meaningful lines. You could use the Four Immeasurables prayer. May all beings attain happiness in its causes. May all beings be free from suffering in its causes. May all beings never be separated from joy that is free of misery. May all beings abide in equanimity, free from a bias, attachment and aversion. So from this we can see how important setting our intention is and that's why we generally think about intention or motivation towards the beginning of each program. And I'm aware that I am conflating intention and and motivation here. Keeping this in mind then, let's follow Tipton jumper's instruction, but just for a very short period of time, otherwise the computer here will kick us off the air. In keeping with developing more compassion, understanding and loving kindness to others, we can make bodhicitta, the wish to attain enlightenment for the benefit of all beings, our intention. Now that would be wonderful. It would be the best. But in the final analysis, whatever intention and its consequences are yours to decide. So now let's think about intention. Thank you. We have now covered making offerings to harm givers and so let's move on to the last of the four practices, making ritual offerings and seeking the help of Dharma Protectors. On the website dharmawheel.net, Ngaon Drolma describes Dharma Protectors or Dharma Parlors like this Dharma Protectors are male or female figures who help ward off interference to our practice. On the deepest level, they represent our blissful awareness of voidness in strong, energetic forms the best protection against interference. With ourselves as Buddha figures we visualize certain protectors in each direction around or inside our mandalas. In specific Yidam practices we also invite certain other types of Dharma protectors such as Mahakala or Lamo, into our mandalas to make offerings to them and to give them instructions to assist us in our enlightened activities. Many of this last type of protectors were originally powerful spirits, either clutching ghosts, otherwise hungry ghosts or divine beings of non-Buddhist traditions. Some were harmful and others were simply guardians of mountain tops or local regions. Great masters of the past have tamed them and made them swear oaths to protect the Buddhist Dharma and its practitioners. As Buddha figures we are like masters and the Dharma protectors we deploy are like our fierce guard dogs unless we have the strength to control them and to feed them regularly, they may turn against us. Thus the dharma-protective practices in which we invite specific ones into our mandalas are extremely advanced, not for beginners. Engagement in their practices normally requires receiving specific subsequent permissions, that's jenangs, for them. Dharma-protective practices include elaborate fulfill-and-restore rituals in which we, as Buddha figures, remind the Protectors to fulfill the oaths that they promised and restore our close bonds with them by making special offerings. Another common ritual is the golden libation in which we offer alcohol or black tea to the Protectors but without tasting it ourselves. We may also simply invite the Protectors into our mandalas to make offerings, especially of taumas, and to make requests. In the West, people informally call these practices Protector pujas. Lama Namse Rinpoche elaborates on this on www.rinpoche.com. He says, When receiving precious Dharma instructions, especially those of the Great Vehicle, it is necessary to arouse the pure motivation, bodhicitta, which is the sincere wish to attain enlightened mind for the benefit of oneself and every living being. Before earnestly studying and meditating the Buddha Dharma, it is utterly necessary to recollect the fundamental teachings and to be sure that one has understood them correctly. Every dharma activity presupposes a good understanding of the basic instructions that Lord Buddha gave to us. For example, any skyscraper that is erected without a fundament will collapse in a storm. And it's the same with the knowledge of dharma. It's only possible to progress in one's practice if one understands and has integrated the basic instructions in one's life. It is tempting to think one has understood them, but it happens so very often that practitioners falter if they skip stages while hoping to traverse the path and achieve fruition. And this is an introduction to a teaching on Mahakala that Lama Namse Rameshe had been requested to give. Mahakala is a very popular dharma protector in the Tibetan tradition and appears in a multitude of forms. But the request for such teachings, he says, shows a misunderstanding about protective practices. He states that before even considering such a practice, one has to complete a large body of preliminary practices. Otherwise, and I quote, there is the very great danger and probability that many false concepts will arise, and as a result, that person will err, which would be extremely difficult to heal. Without the fundamental practices, one cannot understand Marakala. It is better to refrain, Seeing that practicing Mahakala without preparations on the part of a disciple only makes him or her more neurotic and confused. Let me explain this with an example. People in the West need to have completed elementary school, then junior high, and later receive a high school education before going to college. No parent would think of registering a six year old child at a university. Wouldn't a youngster be out of place and suffer frustrating consequences? If parents overloaded their child with such high expectations, should that child be enrolled in university courses? Dharma is the same. It is necessary to first fully understand what one is doing. Intellectually reiterating what one has heard will not do. Disciples need to discuss their practice with their teacher. If a meditation master sees that the disciple is ready, then he will suggest which practice is suitable and best students must rely upon the insight and decision an authentic and qualified instructor makes when it comes to Dharmapala meditation. He continues, There are different types of Dharmapalas, male and female, with one or two faces, with two or many arms, and in powerful and ferocious forms that bewilder and frighten those who aren't initiated but see them. So, if a student isn't ready but meditates on a Dharmapala, there is the great danger that he or she might think it's all right to destroy enemies or carry out harmful activities with the same force as a specific protector. This problem is not new. It occurred in Tibet for hundreds of years. There are always people who misuse these most peaceful yet powerful techniques of practice. Misled individuals might accomplish their malicious aims by relying on Dharmapalas. One thing for sure, though, Meditating on a Dharmapala with a wrong intention and understanding will directly lead to a rebirth in a lower realm of existence, horrendous states in which beings are doomed to suffer extreme anguish and pain for a very long period of time. In that case, the favorable freedoms and advantages that we all have got now and that are so hard to get, a precious human rebirth, will have been totally wasted. It is generally said that the task of a Dharmapala is to protect the doctrine, its upholders and practitioners. It's not that easy for lay practitioners to appreciate the various Dharmapalas though. Mahakala, for instance, is depicted stomping on two human beings who symbolize death of the two main obstructions that, like a corpse, will not stand up again. He says that greatly realized masters completed extensive preliminary practices before meditating on a guardian protector. He continues, there are three kinds of protectors wisdom, activity, and worldly protectors. A few wisdom protectors are indivisibly united with Avalokiteshvara, the Lord of Compassion. Other wisdom protectors emanate directly. They are completely enlightened bodhisattvas who have taken the vow to guard wisdom holders and the Buddha Dharma for the benefit of sentient beings. He says such protectors would not harm any being whatsoever. But practitioners must be careful about the larger number of worldly protectors. There are more worldly protectors than wisdom dharma parlors, he says. Worldly protectors still have subtle veils. They can be compared with human beings like us, who are apt to do good but do bad things too, and they do cause problems. We can compare worldly protectors with someone who blackmails us or expects a lot in return for any help they may give. We are bound once we have such an unfortunate relationship because they demand regular offerings from us. If we fail, we're in for a surprise. There are protectors even more mundane than the worldly protectors. They control the worldly protectors. If these mundane beings become upset because we didn't satisfy them in one way or another, then trouble is in store, for example mental or physical illness. It's extremely hard to please such beings. They become very nasty if they don't like something we did or failed to do for them. In the ancient texts that are continuing to come to light we read that it is certainly not good if every devotee meditates on the Dharmapala that only a very small number of practitioners are qualified and eligible and that others should not become involved with them. So apart from simply making offerings and asking for help mainly from the enlightened protectors this final of the four practices is not something that we need to get overly involved in. In his commentary, His Holiness the Dalai Lama says The fourth action is to request the enlightening influence of the Dharma protectors. We realize that various problems that arise are just the nature of samsara. So we ask the various protectors for their enlightening influence to be able to handle those situations and turn them into positive ones for our spiritual growth. We make sincere requests to them from our heart that they inspire us to be able to increase our efforts in training our attitudes. And with that, our time is up and we must say farewell. Have a great week, and I hope that you will tune in again next time. Please dedicate any positive potential we have accumulated today to gaining enlightenment for the sake of all beings. Thank you, and goodbye. For more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices, or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio, or Apple Podcasts.